Hey everyone, so a lot of stuff going on in the world, at least here in the States. First there was that bizarre presidential debate a couple of weeks ago, and I knew going in it was bound to be strange. But for me, that was part of the appeal. I thought at the least, you know, it would make for an entertaining spectacle. But I just found the whole thing to be rather depressing, to be honest. Oh look, it's debate night at the old folks' home. Which absurd septuagenarian will steer the country for the next four years? And then on top of it, the bombshell revelation that Trump, the President of the United States, whatever you think of him, had contracted COVID, along with a growing list of White House insiders. Who knew romping around maskless in public could invite infection? I don't know what's more surreal, the season finale of Raised by Wolves, which was pretty strange, or this tumultuous new plague-infested world we now find ourselves living in. Either way, I'd much rather talk about Raised by Wolves again. So here we go. In case you missed it, last week I did a review of the show in general, spanning from the first episode up to episodes 8 and 9, and I received a number of notifications regarding the video version of that review, and I haven't had a chance to go through all of them yet. I've been bogged down with a bunch of real-world stuff, but I promise I will. And before I forget, a shout-out to longtime YouTube viewer Bubblegum Gun. I saw that there was a video you wanted me to check out, and I'll make sure I get around to that as well. There was one comment I read. Someone took offense to me comparing some of the designs to old-school Doctor Who, and I knew something like that was bound to happen. Sometimes when I'm saying or writing something, I hear that little voice in the back of my head warning me that whatever I'm saying might come back to bite me. So I responded to the person and said that was just my irreverent way of trying to say that initially, I found some of the designs like the androids' helmets and suits to look a little campy or dated, but that the designs grew on me and I obviously love the show. And I think they must have been referring to Mother's Necromancer form, but they made a really great observation. They made a comparison to the 1927 silent film Metropolis. Of course, the film features that iconic female robot, which does bear something of a resemblance to Mother's Necromancer form. So good catch. I think on some level, I was also concerned that, given the way I couched the comparison, that people would think I don't like Doctor Who. But actually, old-school Doctor Who with Tom Baker as the Doctor actually has a special nostalgic place in my heart. And I think the fact that the designs were kind of strange or campy was part of the fun, at least in retrospect. I haven't been keeping up with the newer iterations of the show, but I did really love both David Tennant and Christopher Eccleston, uh, their portrayals of the Doctor. And so since doing that initial review of Raised by Wolves, I've been thinking about how I described what, at least on face value, uh, appears or appeared to be the main theme of the show, belief versus unbelief, atheism versus faith, etc. And I came across an article in which the author, uh, while doing his own review of the show, brings up what he describes as, and I'm paraphrasing, the all-too-common science versus religion trope or theme in science fiction. And I was thinking about how Raised by Wolves doesn't neatly fit that mold. As I mentioned last time, one of the interesting aspects of the storyline is that it seems to be uh, the case that the believers may have the technological upper hand, and the adherents of Sol or Mithras don't seem to have any qualms about embracing high technology. 
There was a very brief yet interesting and informative exchange between Mother and yet another nightmare fuel medical droid, once again, I know, that's Star Wars, that suggests the Mithraic lack a fundamental understanding of their own technology. It is accurate to say that dark photons are a poorly understood technology. But the Mithraic designed and built me. How could they not possess a full understanding of their own technology? They followed the formulas they discovered were encrypted in their scriptures. With no real understanding of the underlying concepts. The technology that powers you was a gift from Sol. Passed down from the heavens at the dawn of man. That is Mithraic propaganda. Perhaps. I only know what I've been programmed to believe. And so this revelation definitely invites speculation. Maybe the Mithraic developed or possessed the underlying technological knowledge themselves and then lost it along the way? Or perhaps there's a Mithraic elite who know the truth about the more mundane origins of their technology, but choose to perpetuate the belief that it came from Seoul as a way of keeping the sheep in line or maintaining control of the flock? I suppose a third possibility is that within the story, some mysterious higher power, or maybe an advanced alien civilization, did gift the knowledge to humanity. Given Ridley Scott's involvement and some clues later on in the finale, the ancient alien hypothesis might not be too far off. And before we move on to said finale, there was something interesting I noticed upon rewatching the first episode. As previously covered in the last review, mother and father are androids sent by atheists to restart or seed humanity on the extrasolar planet Kepler-22b, following a great war between atheists and the adherents of a Mithraic solar religion. I mentioned how I thought one of the reoccurring themes of the show is that mankind's impulse towards the spiritual isn't something that can be easily weeded out or suppressed. Mother and father are programmed to promote and instill a humanistic and scientific materialist worldview. And yet there's an interesting scene in the first episode that really caught my attention the second time around. A small girl named Tally, one of the children matured from the embryos or fetuses mother and father brought with them to Kepler-22b, goes missing. Mother traces her tracks to the edge of a giant hole or chasm that will become a reoccurring plot point on the show. Realizing that Tally must have fallen in, Mother, crouching at the edge of the hole, picks up the girl's doll and circles it around her head while letting out a loud, wounded howl. It got me wondering what the significance was. It seemed like some sort of superstitious or primitive mourning ritual, something not in keeping with the android's cool-headed logic and science-based worldview. Was it something in her programming, or were they inferring that even the androids left to their own devices had the ability to develop ritual and culture? But anyway, let's finally talk about that out-of-this-world finale. I guess out-of-this-world both figuratively and literally. Most finales, whether they be a series or season finale, are usually rather climactic, but this was wild beyond words. There were so many bizarre revelations and twists and turns, and the whole thing just felt very surreal, like it was taking place inside some strange twilight dream world. So let's do a run through. And so this is a pretty big thing to overlook, but I think I failed to mention in the last review that near the end of episode 8, Mother, yes, Mother the female android, discovers that she's pregnant. 
And I should have offered this warning earlier, but serious spoilers ahead. I'm going to be going over the finale as well as the last couple of episodes leading up to it in detail. You have been warned. I guess I should probably give everyone 10 seconds to leave. Uh, still here, that's probably less than 10 seconds, but what the hell, let's go. So, uh, Mother had been secretively using a hibernation chamber, tech from the crashed Mithraic Ark, that allowed her to interact with her creator by accessing memories that had been previously blocked. The man who reprogrammed her was Campion Sturgis, hence the origin of the child Campion's name. Sturgis was a skilled hacker who was born to a well-to-do Mithraic family, but defected to the atheist side, taking stolen Mithraic tech secrets with him. And so we get to see the story of how Mother was created, on war-torn Earth, with the help of a child armed with some kind of electrical weapon, maybe some sort of EMP gun, the android that would become Mother is brought down out of the sky, where she had been flying in her necromancer form. Sturgis recovers her unconscious, or offline, body and brings it back to his lab for reprogramming. Perhaps somewhat surprisingly, Mother, when witnessing these memories, doesn't seem to bear any ill will. To the contrary, although seeming at times to be somewhat shocked or confused, in general she appears to be quite taken with her creator and looks on the newly recovered memories of their interactions fondly. As she would later explain it to father, mother describes how she was able to interact with their creator in the present in a virtual space. In this virtual space, mother and her creator make love or knock boots or however you want to phrase it. Uh, thinking that she has some sort of parasitic silicon tumor, mother re-enters the virtual space via the hibernation chamber and speaks once again with her creator, Campion Sturgis. To Mother's dismay, Sturgis coldly announces that she's with Child, and that Campion and the other first-generation children were just practice for the child now growing inside her. And it's pretty hard to ignore the biblical or mythic symbolism or parallels. The story of the Virgin Mary or the old myths of gods coupling with mortal women in their dreams, resulting in pregnancy, come to mind. And so Mother got the idea that she was suffering from a parasitic silicon or silicon tumor, from that aforementioned nightmare fuel medical droid. And I just want to pause to say, for some reason, I love the design of those medical robots, even though they creep the hell out of me. When I first saw the burnt-up medical droid, I know, Star Wars, from back in Episode 2, I think it was, I assumed that its eyes must have been burned away. But no, that's just how the eyes look. They have these little metal tubular protrusions sticking out from empty sockets where their eyeballs should be. I don't know if there's any explanation for why their eyes are like that, or why they look so different from other android models, but my pet theory is maybe those little cylindrical tube-shaped eyes are like high-powered microscopes that allow them to more precisely perform medical operations. I don't know pure conjecture. But this medical android tells Mother that she can slow the problem down by feeding the tumor what they call quote-unquote fuel blood. And she then proceeds to drain all the medical android she finds in the Ark wreckage. There's a kind of gruesome but comical scene where we see their dismembered bodies hanging all around her. And so even after Mother finds out that she's pregnant, she still feels compelled to seek out fuel blood. Perhaps all the more now because she now knows it's for the sake of her child. 
And this brings me to something that's really captured my imagination or piqued my curiosity. As I pointed out before, the androids in Raised by Wolves bear strong similarity to the androids in Ridley Scott's Alien universe. Not only do they bleed or leak the same off-putting white fluid, but their interiors seem to be quite similar too. Usually when we think android, we probably think metal. But both the androids in the Aliens franchise and in Raised by Wolves seem to have insides composed of a synthetic network of pale or yellowish tubes and mesh, with the aforementioned whitish fluid or oil running through it, so perhaps some kind of hydraulic design. In Raised by Wolves, it seems to be implied that there may be some kind of compatibility between the androids and organic life forms, or that at least they have the ability to somehow process organic matter. What specifically made me wonder if this might be the case is the fact that Mother is able to use human blood to feed her unborn child. But then again, it could just be the case that the siphoning tube is running directly to the fetus, or that Mother is able to run human blood through her system while not necessarily being able to metabolize it. So many unanswered questions. But this brings me to a very interesting yet disturbing subplot I neglected to mention last time. After the Ark of the Mithraic crashes on Kepler-22b, it's revealed that there's a prisoner among the survivors. And it's funny, the Mithraic already have this kind of medieval crusader vibe, but this prisoner's appearance really reminds me of a medieval crusader knight for some reason. I think it's mainly the helmet he's made to wear as part of his punishment. It's almost like this big dark bucket with a ring of spikes around it. And we never see the actor's face, so it could be one of those things where a separate actor does the voice work. The character is absolutely despicable, but the voice work is amazing. He's this kind of dark, hulking figure, but the voice in contrast is really airily well-spoken. And so this prisoner's crime, and this is really disturbing, is that when everyone was in their stasis chambers on the Ark, this guy went around and basically, there's no polite word for it, um, raped or sexually assaulted a bunch of the females while they were in stasis, one of them being Tempest, the pregnant Mithraic girl that ends up being a part of Mother and Father's group. And so this guy is accompanied by an android who functions as a kind of traveling prison guard. If the android is destroyed or separated from the prisoner by a certain distance, the prisoner's helmet will implode, killing him. There's a development that I found strangely cathartic or entertaining. Mother comes across the prisoner and essentially turns him into a walking blood bag. Mother becomes reunited with some of the children, but meanwhile something very strange happens with the prisoner. The blood flow going from him to mother via a tube, or tubes plural, is suddenly reversed, and the prisoner triumphantly announces that he now has her power. The guy was already large, but now things kind of go Super Saiyan, nerdy Dragon Ball Z reference. His muscles and veins begin to bulge to the point of bursting through his shirt. And I should have mentioned this earlier, but the android guarding him has been reduced to just a still operational head in a backpack that the prisoner, you know, carries around. So he's now more dangerous than ever and basically has full autonomy. 
And so this brings up my point once again that there seems to be some weird compatibility between androids and humans. Not only can blood cycle between a human and an android, but the prisoner is also somehow receiving a transfusion of mother's strength, as if certain synthetic chemicals from mother's physiology were passed into the blood. And so, not to trigger anyone, but we're basically dealing with a super rapist. And there's a harrowing scene where he almost violates Tempest again, but another Mithraic girl, who has become part of Mother and Father's group, quickly grabs the android's head from the backpack and chucks it, causing the rapist or prisoner's helmet and head to implode. And that basically takes us into the finale. So everyone's now reunited, mother and father and all the kids, along with a Mithraic woman who's the mother of one of the children in the group. So I should stop to explain something. Last time I didn't reveal the nature of Travis Fimmel's character because I didn't want to give away or spoil everything for those who hadn't watched the show yet. But I feel like spoilers are kind of unavoidable if my goal is to give a really thorough analysis of the finale. So I guess, you know, no holding back. Massive spoilers ahead. And so the Mithraic boy Paul, who kind of becomes Campion's BFF, obviously the android mother is not his real mother, nor is the Mithraic woman I just mentioned who joins the group, who he considers to be his mother. His mother. <laughs> boy, this is convoluted. Uh, but here's the big reveal I avoided last time. Travis Fimmel's character and the Mithraic woman who just joined Mother's group were originally a couple on Earth, both of them atheist soldiers. In a desperate attempt to escape the dying war-torn planet, they used the aforementioned burnt-up nightmare fuel medical robot they come across to alter their appearances. They find a database of Mithraic people who are cleared for passage aboard the Ark and order the medical android to perform plastic surgery on them so they can assume the identities of a specific Mithraic couple. After a short healing period, they go to the residence of the real couple and shoot them dead after a very brief yet awkward WTF moment. They successfully make it onto the Ark and eventually find themselves on Kepler-22b. And before I forget, yes, they discover they, or the couple who they killed and whose identities they stole, have or had a child named Paul. They seem to genuinely care deeply for Paul, and this makes sense all the more when it's later revealed that they were unable to have a child of their own. Travis Fimmel's character, who takes on the identity of a Mithraic soldier named Marcus, starts to garner the deep respect and admiration of those around him, and even comes to be viewed as a prophet after a strange occurrence where the former leader, Ambrose, seems to miraculously burn to death after Fimmel's character presses his face against the wall of a mysterious edifice. Drunk on his newfound power and wrestling with a fractured sense of identity, Fimmel's character Caleb, now Marcus, starts to descend into madness. He begins to actually believe in soul, and driven by obsession and religious fervor, begins to push his little band of Mithraic survivors to the point of mutiny. After Caleb slash Marcus coldly slits the throat of one of their own for complaining or questioning him, a soldier who once strongly supported who he thought was Marcus attacks him and shoves something appearing to be poison in his mouth. And I believe this actually occurs right at the end of episode 9 as a kind of cliffhanger. We see Fimmel's character lying in the sand frothing at the mouth while his group walks away seemingly leaving him in the desert to die. 
We find out in the finale that he was actually given some kind of psychedelic or hallucinogen. We see him throughout the episode staggering about on some kind of spirit journey or vision quest. So either the compound shoved violently in his mouth at the end of episode 9 was intended as a lethal poison but he survived suffering hallucinogenic side effects, or it was specifically meant to send him on some kind of psychedelic spirit journey to test whether or not he was truly worthy. Maybe something akin to peyote or ayahuasca. And didn't Travis Fimmel trip once or twice as Ragnar on Vikings also? Anyway, so earlier Mary slash Sue, and I know there's a Mary Sue joke in there somewhere, although she's definitely not one, the romantic partner or wife of Fimmel's character, disturbed by his unhinged behavior and concerned for her son's safety, eventually manages to flee with Paul and some of the other Mithraic children, ultimately joining up with Mother somewhere around the encounter with the bucket-headed super-rapist. I have to admit I found Mary or Sue, I think Mary ironically was her atheist name, uh, I found her kind of a bland character early on. Uh, but for me at least, her character becomes really much more sympathetic and compelling near the end of the season. And so temporarily, the little settlement or colony mother and father had built had been taken over by the Mithraic survivors. Father had been kinda returned to factory setting, shall we say, but he's brought back with the help of a Mithraic boy named Hunter. And Hunter, portrayed by the American actor Ethan Hazard, really has an interesting and satisfying character arc. There's definitely some good character development there. When Mother first brings back the group of Mithraic children from the Ark, Hunter's probably one of the more resistant or defiant ones. Somewhat understandably, as much as I love Mother, she along with Father are my favorite characters, she did kinda abduct them from the Ark and then caused it to violently crash on Kepler-22b, probably killing their parents. Uh, although in fairness, I don't know if the children know that Mother intentionally brought down the Ark. If not, maybe that revelation will become a plot point in Season 2. Two, which to my delight has already been greenlit due to the success of season one. But Hunter, who happens to be the oldest boy in the group, starts out as a bit of a dick, very kind of haughty and standoffish, wants nothing to do with mother and father, is the first one you would expect to sell them out. But when push comes to shove, he actually helps restore father, who he affectionately calls Pops, and they escape the Mithraic and eventually meet up with the rest of the gang. And that's kind of where the finale takes us. Mother, father, and the children are all united again, along with the addition of Mary, or Sue, the former atheist soldier slash medic, who Paul thinks is his biological mother. And you could say she's well on her way to becoming an accepted member of the group, even helping to monitor mother's pregnancy. The group seeking refuge board a small craft piloted by Father and land on a new area of the planet that we haven't seen before. It's not as desolate as where the settlement had been. It's in more of a wooded forest region. And there's definitely a kind of biblical feel to the story here as well. Travelers seeking refuge awaiting a miraculous pregnancy, well, seemingly miraculous pregnancy. And there's actually an interesting exchange that takes place between the children as they argue and speculate over the nature of mother's pregnancy. I think Paul is right. My mother's pregnancy, it has to be divine. It's all true. I saw a temple with pentagonal sides, just like in the prophecy. Are you serious? Yeah. I should have died when that guy forced my arm into the hole. But I didn't, because Soul saved me. You're full of shit. No, it was a miracle. You see? 
Saul saved us, too. Check it out. It's Romulus's tooth. It survived the crash. We saved ourselves, Holly. It wasn't that stupid tooth. Do you really think Mother's baby is divine? Yeah. Yeah, I do. Saul probably wants us to bear witness to its birth. So we can write about it in the new scriptures. You guys have lost your damn minds. No, he's right. Maybe Mother took us from the Ark for a reason. Maybe Saul has been working through her all along. Throughout the season, Father has displayed feelings of insecurity regarding his usefulness. When Mother tells him that only she was programmed with the secret knowledge or memories of their creator, he seems troubled or saddened. And then when he learns she coupled or mated with said creator, albeit virtually, he seems struck with what can only be described as sexual jealousy. And I actually found this new dynamic between mother and father to be really moving. It's as if the writers and the actors playing mother and father were able to really capture this kind of problematic yet perennial aspect of the male-female dynamic. What sort of interaction? We communed in a virtual space. And while we did, information was downloaded into my drives. Instructions for how to build a new kind of being. It was as if my sensors began to multiply and my programming seemed almost infinite. You made it. Yes. Yes, Father, it was extraordinarily pleasant. I wish you could have... What's wrong, Father? I haven't even told you the upsetting part yet. I disagree, Mother. The idea of you mating with someone makes me feel oddly displaced. Mother and father had always seemed to have a certain spark of humanity, but in some instances it was hard to tell how much was genuine and how much was just a case of machines aping or imitating human behavior. But some moments seemed deeply genuine, like the touching reunion scenes, and in this case, seeing Father agonized by feelings of inadequacy and sexual jealousy. Father becomes so troubled by these feelings that he considers returning himself to his default settings to escape them. But unforeseen developments cause him to abandon the idea. And from here on out, things really start to get weird and wild as if they weren't before. And so traces of what seems to be an alien civilization start to pile up pretty quickly. Paul, the young boy who's friends with Campion and who still thinks the two atheist soldiers in disguise are his parents, wanders into a cave. I believe he was following his pet mouse, who in his own way is kind of a reoccurring character throughout the show. Paul discovers seemingly ancient cave paintings, kind of reminiscent of Lascaux, as well as maybe aboriginal cave art. There's clearly human handprints on the wall, as well as a serpent figure, which will soon seem more significant. And there's also what looks to be a depiction of a spacecraft, with two pilots, and towards the back or lower middle of the ship is a pyramidal stack of circles, as if some kind of cargo. My personal theory, the pilots could be mother and father, and the circles could be the embryos they brought with them to Kepler-22b. That's pure conjecture, and I'm open to other theories or ideas. 
There's another scene not long after where Mother is standing at the edge of a giant hole or chasm, similar to the one near their settlement. A shambling figure approaches Mother from behind, seemingly bent on attacking her or knocking her into the chasm. But Mother, badass as ever, uh, senses his approach and spins around and strikes the thing down with brutal precision, killing it. Having been close by, Father arrives at the scene. The hooded creature Mother neutralized appeared to be some kind of disfigured humanoid. The word Morlock or troglodyte comes to mind. The creature was carrying an ancient-looking skull. Father analyzes it by tasting the organic material and concludes that not only is it a Neanderthal or Neanderthal, tomato-tomato skull, like what one would expect to find on Earth, but that its particular composition is unique to the planet that they're currently on, meaning that the creature must have evolved on Kepler-22b. They then conclude, given the sickly and primitive nature of the creature mother killed, that the humanoid inhabitants of Kepler-22b aren't evolving, but rather devolving. Afterward, Mother discovers the remnants of something we had seen strange dreamlike glimpses of earlier. We had seen flashes of what looks like a group of cloaked figures gathered around a bizarre, almost Hieronymus Bosch-esque figure. It appears to be comprised of an almost insectoid alien head seated upon or protruding from what appears to be a dodecahedron or some other geometric shape, perhaps a nod to sacred geometry. The head moves around erratically, spewing forth some kind of grotesque liquid. Mother looking over the remnants finds the head which is actually a mask or helmet with a humanoid skull inside. And for you hardcore alien fans, tell me if I'm wrong, but the insectoid mask or helmet bears a striking resemblance to that worn by the figure we've come to affectionately refer to as the space jockey. Some alien fans despise Prometheus and Covenant, and I could nitpick about a couple of things, like the old age makeup, etc., but generally speaking, I love those movies, and I'm absolutely fascinated by the race of aliens referred to as the Engineers. So if you're not familiar, in the movie Prometheus, we're introduced to an alien race responsible for seeding life on Earth. And we discover that the dead space jockey or pilot figure depicted in the film Alien is actually one of these aliens, an engineer, wearing a pilot's helmet. The fact that something looking strikingly similar to this helmet appears in Raised by Wolves, which already features androids unmistakably similar to those in the Alien movies, and that we're now in the finale exploring the idea of an ancient alien race possibly seeding human or humanoid life on other planets, it does certainly pique one's curiosity. Like I said last time, I don't know if these things are just meant as clever Ridley Scott Easter eggs or nods to the Alien franchise, or if they're meant to indicate that there really is some kind of connection. And so after this revelation, Mother's Baby finally arrives, and surprise, congratulations ma'am, it's a lamprey. And I hate to admit it, but I really didn't see this coming. I thought the child was going to be some kind of human-looking super baby with an android strength and intelligence, and then there'd be some ongoing subplot where Campion had to deal with living in the shadow of this perfect child. But no, it's some creepy-ass thing that belongs in the bottom of a swamp. 
And even though Mother's an android, there's still a creepy body horror vibe. It actually kind of reminds me of the scene in Aliens where the xenomorph queen suddenly pierces Bishop and we see him, you know, we see him crane his head back and spew that baby batter looking fluid everywhere. In this case, the lamprey thing erupts from Mother's mouth. And as she's craning her head back in shock, she sees that up in the sky above her, there's some kind of strange convergence or a conjunction of heavenly bodies or spheres. That, along with the cave paintings mentioned earlier, almost give the feeling that this is all part of some prophecy come to pass. And if things weren't strange enough, as this long eel or snake-like thing leaves Mother's mouth, we learn that it can fly. It basically seems to defy physics and simply swims through the air, moving its undulating body the way a snake would on land or an eel in water. The thing latches its lamprey sucker mouth onto Mother's quote-unquote nipples, or nipple for lack of a better word. At least I think that's what's happening. If we remember back to the scene in the first episode, Mother had tubes running from protuberances on her torso, almost like the rows of nipples on a non-human mammal, into the square containers or jars that the developing fetuses were in. And when Campion, I think that was him, as a small, almost lifeless fetus or infant is handed to Mother, she brings him back from the brink by seeming to hold him against her chest, as if nursing him. Now that I think about it, this is another example of the strange compatibility in this universe between androids and humans. Mother was able to process the nutrients needed for human survival through her system and then pass them along to the fetuses like a human mother. I suppose it's not that strange. Nutrients and medicines are passed to human recipients or patients via IV all the time. An android capable of doing the same actually seems rather plausible and efficient. But back to the nightmare at hand. So this lamprey thing latches itself onto Mother's torso to feed. And Mother, looking shocked and afraid, gently rests her hand on the thing's head. And I never thought I'd be mentioning Northern Exposure during a Raised by Wolves review, but it did remind me of a scene from the show. And if you're not familiar, Northern Exposure is an old-school TV show that originally aired back in the 90s, but it's one of my all-time favorites, and it basically focuses on life in a small, quirky town in northern Alaska. It's offbeat and humorous, but it also has a lot of heart and depth, a lot of references to literature and philosophy. It explores indigenous culture a lot, too, which I really dug. But there was a scene where this guy, I think his name might have been Leonard. He was an indigenous person who was, if I remember correctly, it might have been actor Graham Greene, uh, who, if I remember correctly, uh, was both a medical doctor and a shaman. And there's a scene where he's talking to a pregnant woman, I think, uh, specifically the character of Shelley Tambo. And he's trying to reassure her that it's common for pregnant women to have unsettling dreams about giving birth to all sorts of weird things. And he gives a couple of examples, like women dreaming of giving birth to a, a salmon or a hamburger. But, uh, but mother in this lamprey thing brought that to mind. And I think it definitely does hit some kind of nerve relating to a deep primordial fear of bodily invasion or having something grotesque or nightmarish inside of us. And now that I think of it, that was a key theme of the Alien movies from the get-go. And I remember I was watching some kind of documentary about the making of Alien, and they were talking about how this was very intentional. 
the facehuggers, the chestbursters, the nightmarish eroticism of the xenomorph, and that second set of jaws that can punch through a victim's body. Uh, but back to the story. So Mother Gingerly, cradling the thing, comes across Father in the woods and warns him that the thing's not a danger as long as it's suckling. Father recommends throwing it into the hole, but Mother informs him that's not possible because it can fly. And so if you watch the episode, or if you're just listening to me describe it, your reaction might be WTF. As I, like mine, as I said earlier, I did not see this coming at all. I thought it was going to be some kind of synthetic super baby, not some grotesque snake or eel thing with a sucker mouth. After the initial WTF moment passed, my first thought was, okay, we're playing spores here. Remember that game? I was thinking this thing was meant to restart the evolutionary process, but instead of beginning with single-celled organisms, we're starting with this primitive eel-like creature. In retrospect, I'm not sure how much water that theory holds. While talking to father, mother says that she doesn't believe the pregnancy was from their creator, Campion Sturgis, after all, and that something else was responsible. Earlier, she had described how the baby seemed to have been formed after she received some kind of instructions for forming a new life in the form of a download while in the virtual space with Sturgis, or who she thought was Sturgis. Since she was using Mithraic technology to commune with what she thought was Sturgis, I suppose it could be possible that the downloaded blueprints for life were Mithraic in origin, or that somehow the theoretical alien civilization that may have seeded life on Kepler-22b orchestrated Mother's pregnancy. There's a kind of touching and poetic moment where Mother realizes the right thing to do is to destroy the creature, even if it requires a suicide mission. And Father, with a warm, reassuring smile, offers to join her because it will make him quote-unquote useful. The two of them board the shuttle and set the controls to take them straight down the chasm, where they will eventually reach the planet's molten core. Along the way, Mother and Father, taking on heat damage, remember the happy moments they shared establishing their settlement with the children and say goodbye to one another. While the serpent grows and writhes near the front of the ship, as if entering a wormhole or some kind of space-time anomaly, mother and father somehow pass through the planet's magma-filled core and emerge fully restored and undamaged in a lush part of what I assume may or may not still be Kepler-22b. The serpentine creature, now having reached gigantic size, ominously swims through the air and into the forest. For some reason, this made me abandon my pet theory that its purpose was to see life or restart the evolutionary process. The monstrous size of the creature makes me think that it may have another purpose. And once again, I noticed some intentional or unintentional mythic or biblical symbolism. When I saw this snake thing swimming around in the air, or writhing and winding around in the ship with mother and father, I couldn't help but think of the serpent in the garden. And in a way, mother and father do kind of have an Adam and Eve thing going on. And something about it also made me think about the snake that steals the magic plant that restores youth in the Epic of Gilgamesh. And don't worry, I'll resist the temptation to go off on a digression about the parallels between the Epic of Gilgamesh, or the Atrahasis, and the events in the Flood narrative of the Bible, and other events in Genesis. But the connection is probably why it brought to mind both stories. 
Uh, anyway, so earlier, Mary or Sue, concerned that Paul may be suffering from religious delusions like Caleb slash Marcus, the man he believes to be his father, finally admits to Paul that she doesn't believe in soul. Paul, although understandably upset and confused, seems to handle this relatively well. But later, he suddenly pulls a gun, I believe it's her gun, on the woman he thought was his mother, and announces that he knows who she really is, that she's an atheist who killed his real parents. He then shoots Sue, or Mary, and the other children rush to her aid and wrestle the gun away from Paul. Paul claims that it was Sol who told him about his parents, which raises a number of questions. Within the story, does Sol actually exist, and is he directly talking to Paul, or is he being manipulated by some alien entity? Or a more mundane possibility, could he have retrieved the information from the shuttle's computer? He did spend time alone in the vessel earlier in the episode. When Campion earlier witnessed mother and father speed down the chasm, he screamed down after them in grief. Mother and father, when they thought they were dying in the shuttle, took comfort in the knowledge that the children would take care of one another in their absence, and that Campion would lead them as had always been his destiny. There's a powerful scene near the end where we see Campion rise up from the edge of the pit where he had been screaming after mother and father and he turns to calmly lock eyes with the waiting group, now including the wounded but stable Mary or Sue. There's a kind of palpable but unspoken air of solidarity as they beckon him and he slowly makes his way towards the firelit camp where they're gathered. There's another big development towards the end. Travis Fimmel's character, still zonked on Mithraic shrooms or whatever they were, encounters a group of armed soldiers in the woods. The credits confirm that they're atheist soldiers. Even while tripping balls, Ragnar, I know, it's just fun to pretend, <laughs> Ever the Badass manages to grab one of their guns and take out the whole group save for one frightened soldier, who he then orders to pray with him. Overhead, we see a giant craft that rivals the Ark of the Mithraic, so it looks like the atheists might not have been as technologically behind as we, or at least I, thought. And now they're on Kepler-22b. And so what will this mean for the various characters? Mother and father are atheist androids. Campion was raised atheist. The rest of the children were raised Mithraic, but are now part of mother and father's group. Mary or Sue is an atheist who had been masquerading as a believer, and Caleb or Marcus was an atheist soldier who's now drunk in the Mithraic Kool-Aid. How will these newly arrived atheists receive and treat these characters? I don't know, but I can't wait for season two. As always, thanks for listening.